Please turn your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 3. <clears throat> As you turn there, just a, two things I kind of want to highlight in the life of our church right now. Firstly, it's, it's very rare for me to sign up for a ministry without first talking to my wife, uh, but I did so a few weeks ago. Uh, some, some people were presenting this kids club opportunity to me, and uh, it was a no-brainer. And so I I said, this is something my family definitely wants to be a part of. What Kids Club is, it's a ministry that has these Monday night meetings in Eureka, and just an, an amazing ministry. And what they, the, the people that are leading this ministry have a vision to see a Christian families come alongside the families that they're ministering to there in Eureka, and uh, begin to kind of just have a ministry family to family. It doesn't require attending the Monday night meetings, our, our family won't be able to do so. But the reason that I said this was a no-brainer for my family is it combines three things that God is incredibly passionate about. Children, it's an opportunity to minister to children and their parents, or, or parent, usually a single parent uh, situation. It gives one the opportunity to be involved in gospel ministry to these families, which God, of course, is very passionate about as well. And God is also passionate for the needy, and many of these people and that Kids Club is ministering to you, are uh, needy. I told the people as they presented this ministry to us, I said, you know, churches spend tens of thousands of dollars trying to start up ministries that do what, what you guys have been able to accomplish in just a, uh, a short amount of time. And I said, this is a, a great opportunity for our church. And so I just want to commend this opportunity to you. It's an opportunity for you uh, as an individual or as a family to invest in the life of a child and, and their parent and bring them into your, your life very simple ways, and I believe the commitment is just for a few months at first to see how it goes, and uh, there'll be meeting, telling you more about this ministry opportunity in Ballroom A following our service. So that's the first thing I want to commend to you. Uh, Also, uh, of course, uh, we're in the midst of this uh, campaign to to purchase the land and see how God would continue to lead our our church in that. Someone uh, met with me this week, and we were talking, and they said something I thought was, was very interesting. They said, you know, uh, due to the situation that my family is in, we're not going to be able to be one of the, the big contributors. You know, we talked about how the, the average family unit is going to need to give around $5,000, and some are going to be able to give more, some are going to be able to less. He said, you know, as I think about $655,000 and what we can contribute, it seems like nothing. He said, now, I think other people are in the same boat that we're in just due to finances. Could you kind of give us some sort of tangible understanding what does $500 accomplish? What does $20 accomplish? Because it seems like it would accomplish nothing. He said, kind of break it down geographically for me. I thought, that's a great idea. So here, here's a, uh, th- now these are pastoral calculations. Uh, these have not been approved by any sort of, geor- uh, uh, I don't even know what they're called, um, uh, surveyors. <laughs> but anyway, uh, if you say, oh, we want to somehow, based on, this is not based on what's already been spent, but but based upon our $655,000 need, I want to contribute to one square foot of that property. That would be 20 cents. Uh, 20 cents uh, contributes to one square foot of the, the property out there. If you say, well, what about a 10 by 10 square, what, 100 square feet there? What would that be? That's $20. $20 goes toward, would go toward a 10 by 10 square footage there. $500 would encompass an area 50 feet by 50 feet. And every acre, based upon... 75 acres, uh, divide, or $655,000 divided into 75 acres. An acre is $8,700. So that kind of gives you a perspective of what your contribution uh, can accomplish as uh, you allow God to work. And I hope that's encouraging. It was encouraging for me as I thought about the possibilities of, of each part of the body of Christ being able to do as God has called them and equipped them to do. Because, you know, some of us are in a situation where God has, has provided us with a job over the last five years and we haven't been out of work, and, and others of us in our body, uh, you have encountered some tough financial times, and we, uh, we want to be sensitive to that and allow you to see that, that even the a little amount that God would allow you to, to contribute can do mighty things in his hands, and I hope that's encouraging for you. Well, we're in Luke chapter 3, and uh, honestly, as I came to Luke chapter 3, verses 21 through 38, it's one of those times that you look at these passages and you think, really, God? Uh, you know, I'm very committed to expositional preaching, which is preaching through a book of the Bible verse by verse, but you get to the genealogies, and 
that's a little tough, okay? But I am so grateful to God that uh, we do teach through the Bible this way because uh, this is not a text I would have naturally selected on my own, and yet God has greatly encouraged my heart this week as I've thought through this passage, and I hope that you are encouraged as well as we study through this important text together. And now in honor of God's word, if you would stand with me as we read Luke chapter 3, verses 21 through 38. Luke begins, verse 21 is where we're going to start. Now, when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being as was the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli. Excuse me. <clears throat> the son of Mathet, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Jani, the son of Joseph, the son of Mathathias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Esli, the son of Nagai, the son of Maith, the son of Matthias, the son of Simeon, the son of Josic, the son of Jodah the son of Jonan, the son of Resa, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtel, the son of Neri, the son of Melchi, the son of Adai, the son of Kosim, the son of Elmadam, the son of Ur, the son of Joshua, the son of Eleazar, the son of Joram, the son of Mathet, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonan, the son of Eliakim, the son of Mela, the son of Minna, the son of Mathathiah, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salah, the son of Nishon, the son of Amminadab, the son of Admin, the son of Arni, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Sarig, the son of Ru, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Arphaxed, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalil, the son of Canaan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. You may be seated. Let's pray that God would bless our time in his word this morning. Father, we thank you for your word. It is our firm conviction that every word in scripture is inspired by you. We believe that you have given us this word this morning to instruct us and how to live rightly before you, and who your son is. I pray that our hearts would be very sensitive to your leading this morning. You'd convict us of sin, our need to turn from it, and you'd give us great confidence as we place our faith in your son Jesus. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Dr. Joshua, Dr. Joshua Caldwell, by all accounts, was a very busy man. Dr. Caldwell was constantly seen on the go running around the quarters of three hospitals there in Jacksonville, Florida. In fact, he was not just a busy doctor, but he was a doctor that seemed to be very considerate. One woman remarked how he gave her a prescription there in the hallways of one of the hospitals, and then he came by her home to make sure that she was doing okay after writing her that prescription for her medication. But There were also some things about Dr. Caldwell that were a little bit unusual. For example, if you were to ask one of the staff at any of those three hospitals that he frequented, what exactly is it that Dr. Caldwell does? They would find it very hard to tell you exactly what it was that he did do. I mean, 
he was always on the go. He was always in one of the corridors. He was sometimes writing prescriptions, but he never actually went into the patient's rooms. And in fact, uh, no one was actually sure which hospital he was stationed at or where his practice was. You see, Dr. Caldwell wasn't really Dr. Caldwell at all. His medical career had begun not with med school, but with simply picking up a telephone. Dr. Caldwell was actually a man named Gary Steely, a homeless man who had walked in off the street to St. Vincent's Hospital in Jacksonville, Florida, picked up one of the hospital phones, and called the department in charge of printing out identification badges. Claiming to be a doctor, he said, I'm going to send a young man down to see you. Please print out an identification badge for him. Gary Steely showed up and thus began his medical career. He traveled over the next several weeks between these three hospitals. He would, uh, he'd been a homeless person. Now he had a home and a career. Uh, he had this place to stay in the physician's lounge, would camp out on the couches there, take showers there. And he could make a little supplemental income as he stole cell phones and laptops to people. Now, what if someone had stopped Dr. Caldwell? What if the woman in charge of printing out his identification badge had said, you know what, I'm going to need to verify that you are who you claim to be. I need some sort of documentation, some sort of photo ID before I give you this badge. It would have saved a lot of hassle. But no one checked to make sure that he was who he claimed to be, and so Gary Steerly, a.k.a. Dr. Caldwell, lived high for the next couple weeks. How often do you verify the identification of the people in your life? Probably it's proportional to the importance of the task that you're asking them to perform. So if you're asking someone in a store for directions as to where something is, you probably don't see. Now, can you prove that you are who you say you are? But if you're asking someone to come to your house and do some contracting work, or you're talking about one of your physicians, or you're talking about a babysitter, you're probably going to want to make sure that you're reasonably certain that the person is who they claim to be, and furthermore, they have the ability to do what they claim that they're going to do. What about a person who demands of you complete and total trust and obedience? How certain are you going to want to be that they are who they say they are? What about a person who says, you need to trust me completely, not just with your life, but with your very soul, because only by trusting in me can you have salvation? How certain do you want to be that they are who they claim to be, that they have the ability to do what they claim that they can do? Let me suggest to you that you want to be very certain. Every person in here has a very profound need. Your greatest need, I would suggest, is not happiness not fulfillment, not significance, not friendship. Your greatest need, the greatest need of every person in here, is righteousness. Righteousness is not something that you can obtain on your own. Righteousness is a commodity that you must have in order to have eternal life, in order to have a relationship with God, and it is a commodity that you cannot possess in and of yourselves. You have no hope of obtaining righteousness on your own. It is a desperate need that you have. And only, only Jesus Christ can offer that righteousness to you. That's what Luke is going to tell us as we go through the Gospel of Luke. Here's Jesus Christ, and he can offer you the righteousness you so desperately need. And now, as Luke turns his attention from the background material of his gospel and turns his attention to Jesus' ministry, he's going to identify Christ for us. 
We're going to look at verses 21 and 22 first. We might go a little slow today here with my voice. I apologize. We're going to look at verses 21 and 22. And as we look at these two verses, we're going to see that Luke identifies Jesus as the divine Son of God. And then we're going to look at verses 23 and go through verse 38. And we're going to see that not only is Jesus the divine Son of God, but he is the human Son of God. Both of those attributes of Jesus, both of those aspects of his personhood, are crucial for us to understand. Remember, what is it that we need? We need God's righteousness. It's a righteousness that no human being on their own can possess. But Jesus, as the divine Son of God, has that righteousness. And the fact that Jesus is the human Son of God means that we have access to it. Let's look first at Jesus Christ and how he can provide us with the righteousness that we need because he's the divine son of God. Look at verses 21 and 22. Luke tells us this, now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. I want you to notice here that all three members of the Trinity are involved in this, in this identification of Jesus as the divine son of God. First, you have God the son. God the son is baptized Verse 21, it says, all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying. Three things here about Jesus' baptism. First thing is this. Notice that Jesus' baptism is the culmination of John the Baptist's ministry. Verse 21, it says that Jesus is baptized. Verse 20, we have John being thrown into prison. Verse 21 chronologically takes place before John is thrown into prison. And yet, Jesus' baptism here is the culmination of John the Baptist's ministry. It says, all the people have been baptized, and then Jesus is baptized. Luke's point here is that Jesus' ministry is the culmination of John the Baptist's ministry. Remember, John the Baptist's ministry was designed to proclaim the arrival of the Messiah. And now, as Jesus is baptized, it's the culmination of John's ministry. The second thing to notice here about John the Baptist, or about Jesus' baptism is that Jesus' baptism is a very important part of Jesus' ministry and the announcement of Jesus' ministry. Look again at the text. Jesus arrives there to be baptized, and we know something about Jesus' baptism also from Matthew chapter 3. And now as I read about Jesus' baptism, the question that comes to my mind, and perhaps your mind as well, is why, right? Here's Jesus the perfect son of God, and he's being baptized. Why is that? Well, according to Matthew chapter 3, John the Baptist has the same question. Why are you coming to me to be baptized, says John? I should be being baptized by you. And Jesus says something very interesting. Jesus says, look, this is in order to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus sometimes does things in his ministry in order to indicate the way that a righteous person lives. Jesus doesn't need to be baptized in the sense that he has no sin to turn from, but in order to be an example for the way that righteous people should live, Jesus is baptized. He does the same thing in Matthew chapter 17. Remember Matthew chapter 17, there's the temple tax that needs to be paid. And Jesus tells Peter, look, Peter, I'm the son of I'm the son of God. The son has no need to pay the, the tax in the temple, but in order not to give offense, let's, let's go ahead and pay it. And so he does. 
Jesus has no need of his, of, his, of his own to be baptized, and yet, in order to provide us with the example of how a righteous person lives, Jesus is baptized. A couple things here about baptism, I don't, think, I don't want to go into too great a detail, because Luke doesn't spend a lot of time talking about his baptism here. But, but just notice this, uh, Jesus, Jesus is baptized, he's baptized by John in John's baptism, and remember, remember the purpose of John's baptism. John's baptism is for people who are turning from their sin and turning to faith in God. Remember, we've talked about that the last two weeks, this idea of repentance. Baptism is participated in by those who have recognized their need to turn from sin to God. Now, John has earlier said, that's his baptism, and he says, there's coming one after me who's going to baptize with the Holy Spirit. Remember, we saw that last week. The fact here that Jesus is the one who's baptized points to his superior ministry. Jesus' superior ministry is the one that we now are baptized into. And so as we are baptized, we're indicating that we have been baptized by Jesus with the Holy Spirit. I think that tells us something about the nature of baptism and, and who should be baptized. All believers have a responsibility to be baptized once they've placed their faith in Christ. And if Jesus is baptized, how much more do you and I need to follow our Lord in baptism? Okay, again, my point here is that Jesus Christ provides us with righteousness because he's the divine son of God. You see all three members of the Trinity participating in his inauguration of his ministry. Look next, you see God, the Holy Spirit, verse verse 21 as well, and 22. It says that Jesus is baptized, he's, he's praying, it says the, the heavens were opened, and number, verse 22, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form. Uh, the Holy Spirit here descends upon Jesus uh, like a dove in some sort of bodily form, some sort of physical manifestation of the Holy Spirit's presence, and rests upon Jesus. He's saying here that Jesus' ministry is going to be one of, of peace, proclaiming good news to the nations. Furthermore, Furthermore, it's interesting here, as Jesus begins his inauguration, uh, the inauguration of his ministry, the Holy Spirit is empowering him. Throughout the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, Jesus and those who are engaged in ministry for God are going to be empowered by the Holy Spirit, and Jesus, as he begins his ministry here, is also empowered by the Holy Spirit. So you have uh, God the Son being baptized, God the Holy Spirit empowering his ministry, And then finally, you have God the Father testifying concerning his Son. It says this in verse 22 as well. It says, The Holy Spirit descends upon him in bodily form like a dove, and then a voice comes from heaven saying, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. Now, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit always work in perfect unity, don't they? They're always united in purpose, and each person of the Trinity is always engaged in ministry and in their purpose together. And yet, we don't always see that as as clearly as we do here in, in this passage. Here, God the Son is baptized as he begins his ministry. God the Holy Spirit is empowering the ministry of Jesus And God the Father, with his authority as the sovereign God, is declaring, this is my son, this is the son of God, and I am supportive and behind and engaged in this ministry as well. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are all engaged in the inauguration here of Jesus' ministry, and they will continue to be engaged in Jesus' ministry together while he's on earth. It's important for us to understand the nature here of the Trinity. It's important to see God the Son being obedient, God the Holy Spirit empowering, and God the Father testifying to Jesus' ministry. It's interesting that he says... It's interesting here that Jesus' that Jesus' father testifies concerning his son. I imagine here the nature of this of this person <clears throat> excuse me. 
Tell you what, I, I promise not to feel bad for you guys if you promise not to feel too bad for me here, okay? <clears throat> God has a sovereign plan even in losing voices, doesn't he? God, the, let's see if I can remember my train of thought here. Uh, God the Son is being baptized, God the Holy Spirit is empowering, and God the Father is testifying. It's, it's uh, the credibility of God the Father here testifying confirms the identity of the Son. Luke's purpose here, let me just kind of summarize here, see if we can regain some ground. Luke's purpose here is to identify Jesus as part of the triune God, okay? Remember, I, I started by talking about our need. We have a need for God's righteousness. Jesus is being identified as part of the triune God, and as part of the triune God, has the authority to grant us righteousness, has access to perfect righteousness as, as God, and has the, uh, has the resources at his disposal in order to accomplish the purposes of righteousness. Whenever I, uh, sometimes, Whitney and I will watch a, a show on the internet, it comes on TV too, but we, we don't watch it on, on TV for whatever reason, I don't even know when it comes on, but it's a show called uh, Shark Tank. Has anyone seen Shark Tank? It's not a nature documentary. It's a television show about these five investors. And people will come to these five investors, and they'll present to them some sort of business plan, maybe a product they've already developed or a business they've already developed. And the, the problem that these people have is they're coming to these five investors or these sharks is that they don't have the resources on their own in order to take their business to the next level. And so they'll come to these guys and say, you know what, I, I need... Uh, $100,000 in order to, to take my business to the next level. And I'll give you 40% of my company for $100,000. And I, I love watching the show because I, I like watching the, the bickering back and forth and the, the discussion of how much the business is actual, actually worth. And then I like hearing the stories later about how these investors, with their resources, their resources of distribution and advertising and production, have been able to take this this beginning of an idea or the beginning of this business and, and take it global or, or have been able to, to launch this business to a new level. These investors have resources that these individuals on their own don't have access to. Luke is telling us here, as he's going to begin transitioning from the background of the ministry to Jesus' future ministry, he's telling us that God... Jesus Christ, as God, has access to resources that you and I do not have on our own. You and I have no ability to obtain the righteousness of God on our own. Jesus Christ, as God, already has perfect righteousness. When I was taking a statistics class one time, the professor drew kind of a little you know, equation on the board. He said, look, I want to teach you college students how to win at blackjack every time. College students said, that sounds very interesting to us. We would like to win at, at blackjack. I said, well, here's what's going to take. You need to double your bet every time. So you lose, double your bet, lose, double your bet, lose, double your bet. And eventually, you'll, you'll, you'll have gained your money back. He said, there's only two problems uh, with this method of mine. He said, problem number one is at the moment you win, you have to walk away from the table. Because most people don't do that. Uh, the other problem is this. For this to be 100% foolproof and for it to always work, uh, you need to have an infinite amount of money. Because uh, it's possible to lose 20 times in a row, and what you have to do is continue to, to double your bet. And if you can't do that because you don't have enough resources, you're eventually going to lose. And that's one of the many reasons that gambling is so foolish, right? As God, Jesus has access to an infinite amount of resources. Very often, I believe that you and I, that people, that Christians, struggle with righteousness because we have a watered-down version of who God is. It's very rare that we think about God as a triune God. It's very rare that God is proclaimed and taught as a triune God. It's a very deep truth. And yet, as we think about Jesus Christ and his access to the resources of a triune God, we see that it was crucial for his ministry. If Jesus Christ 
as the divine Son of God, needs the ministry of God the Father and God the Holy Spirit in addition to his own ministry, how much more do you and I need the resources of the triune God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit? Jesus Christ, as he's baptized, is, is praying, drawing upon the resources of God. I want to read a, a quote from you, or for you. It's from Bruce Ware. Bruce Ware says this. He says, The doctrine of the Trinity is both central and necessary for the Christian faith to be what it is. Remove the Trinity, and the whole Christian faith disintegrates. Then he asks this very good question. He says, Can the Christian faith survive if the doctrine of the Trinity is omitted? As one ponders this question, it becomes clear that the work of God, for example, creation, redemption, consummation, the work of God can be rightly understood only as the work of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit unified in the purpose of the work, but distinct in the participation and contribution of each member. So, for example, take salvation, the work of God in salvation. God the Father directs. God the Son offers himself as a sacrifice. God the Holy Spirit enables our hearts to respond in faith. Each member of the Trinity, working together for a common purpose, brings about God's purpose. Jesus Christ, as the divine Son of God, draws upon the resources of God for the rest of his ministry. And because he is God, he has access to the righteousness of God. You and I need God's righteousness. I encourage you this week as you think about the need for righteousness in your own life to, to meditate on what it means to have access to a triune God. God the Father who can direct and offer you comfort, authority for your life. God the Son who's lived a perfect example. God the Holy Spirit who enables you. Well, that's a God the, uh, that's the Jesus Christ can provide us with righteousness because he's the divine Son of God. Now let's look at this next truth. Jesus can provide us with righteousness because he's the human Son of God. We begin in verse 23, going through verse 38. As we go through verse 38, we see this long genealogy. Perhaps you notice, if you've done some study on this, that the genealogy that Luke presents us with here is, dis- is different in some places from the genealogy that Matthew presents. And the natural question is, is why is that the case? Why does Matthew present one list, especially as you go from from David through Jesus. Uh, why is the, are the lists different? A couple of theories as to why that's the case. Uh, some have suggested, well, that means that Matthew and either Matthew or Luke are in error. Of course, we would disagree with that. Others have said, well, perhaps Matthew is talking about Joseph's line and Luke is presenting us with Mary's line, and, and that's certainly a possibility. Others have said this, perhaps... Uh, perhaps what's happening here is there's been some, uh, some, some types of uh, what we're called Leverite marriages. What that means is whenever a, a person was, would die, sometimes his brother would marry the widow. And any children that they would have would be considered the brother who de- who'd been deceased, they would be considered his children. So perhaps Matthew is giving us the, the legal or, or the biological line, and, and Luke's giving us the, the other line. We're not exactly sure, but what we do know is this. There are some very plausible, there are many plausible, reasonable explanations for why these lists would be different, and both are accurate. And both are accurate. Also, another important truth to kind of think about as we think about the background here of Jesus' genealogy is that Jesus' genealogy being considered uh, if it's true that Jesus, on the basis of his genealogy, has the right to reign as the Davidic king, adoption 
is something that's very important in God's mind. That is, the connections between two people are not merely based upon their biology. They are also based upon uh, that adoption is a, a appropriate means in God's eyes to see the link between two individuals. Jesus reigning as the Davidic king depends on adoption being acceptable in God's eyes, and God's seen as just as legitimate as a biological link between two people. Joseph adopts Jesus as his son. Well, let's look here a little bit at the genealogy. Three truths that I want to communicate as we look at this genealogy. The first thing that the genealogy teaches us is that Adam's sin affects all of humanity. The first thing I want us to see is that genealogy teaches us that Adam's sin affects all of humanity. In fact, uh, turn with me to Romans chapter 5. chapter 5, beginning in verse 12, we see Adam's sin described. Again, genealogy teaches us here that Adam's sin affects all of humanity. Luke is going to go all the way back to Adam. Every person that, that Luke lists there, except for Jesus, has been affected by sin. Why is that? Look at verse 12 of Romans chapter 5. <clears throat> Paul writes this, he says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who is to come. Then verse 18, he says, therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. What do we see here? What we're seeing there, according to Romans chapter 5 and according to the genealogy here in Luke chapter 3, is that in Adam's sin, all of us became sinners. That's an important truth to grasp. We didn't just become sinful because of Adam's sin. We became sinners. God looked at Adam's sin, and this is kind of a big theological word, and he, here's the word, imputed it to us. That word imputed means to, to reckon or to charge with. You and I were charged with Adam's sin. When Adam sinned, all of humanity was legally culpable, legally responsible, and felt the corrupting influences of that sin. There are many, many ways, many ways throughout the history of the church that people have thought about Adam's sin. Uh, some people, uh, for example, Pelagius, uh, this Pelagian heresy, said, "You know what? Yeah, Adam sinned, but but uh, Adam sinned, uh, Adam sinned, and it, and it didn't affect us personally. Each of us decide on our own whether or not to sin, and so I'm not responsible for Adam's sin whatsoever." Semi-Pelagianism or Arianism is a, a, a belief that's still held by, by many uh, Christian denominations, Methodists, uh, Wesleyans, uh, many Pentecostal churches would teach, okay, uh, yeah, Adam sinned, and in some way, it's kind of like an example, but I don't, I don't face the legal culpability for his sin, okay? I don't think that's the biblical teaching. What we see here in Scripture, in Romans chapter 5, and I believe this is a very precious truth, and let me, hopefully I can describe uh, why I believe this is such a precious truth and get through this. Um, <clears throat> it's important to see that when Adam sinned, all of us became culpable for that sin. You and I have what's called an imputed nature. You and I can be held accountable for the sin, that other, for the sin or the righteousness of someone else of our representative, of Adam, or we'll see in a moment of Christ. So, for example, let's say that uh, Whitney goes and, and takes our, our credit card and, and purchases something with it. It's like I purchased that, right? It's charged to me, and if I purchase something, it's, it's charged to her. I can't say, well, well, she did that. It's not really, really my charge. Because we are legally united, her 
purchase becomes my purchase. If my children take my credit card out of my wallet at the store and go buy some Lego Star Wars, it's charged to my account. There's a legal relationship there, and I become accountable for what they've purchased. Don't do it, okay? okay. They're getting ideas. Do you know what a credit card is? Good, good, good. Um, that's imputed. I'm responsible. I'm, I'm culpable legally. You and I have an imputed nature. The genealogy of Adam here in Luke chapter 3 is actually a very depressing genealogy. What do all these people have in common? Each of them was affected with the sin of Adam. Last night I, I was reading this passage with our children. I said, and all these people, all these people faced the curse of sin and, and, and died because of Adam's curse. And my son said, well, except Enoch. I said, right, I know, not Enoch. He's right. All except Enoch here in Luke chapter 3 die, and Jesus, die in their sin. And even Enoch is going to need a new body to be delivered from the body of sin. Adam's sin has far-reaching consequences. It affects all of humanity. As you read through that, that list, it's very interesting. Every single person except Enoch there dies as a result of Adam's curse. And also, most of these names, we have no idea who they are. We don't know anything about them other than somehow they were related to Jesus. Person after person after person on this list lives in sin and dies in sin because of the effect and the curse of sin. And their lives, it's very interesting to think about this too, isn't it? Not only are our lives short, but the memory of our lives is also short. How's that for an encouraging thought? <laughs> think about how little you know about your grandparents' life when they were children. How much less do you know about your great-grandparents? They didn't live that long ago. And you, their family, know so little about them. We come on the earth, we live a short amount of time, we die, and no one remembers. No one rem Even famous figures in history, we know so little about who they were and what they liked and what they did. Life is short under the sun. The genealogy here tells us, look, uh, this righteousness that we need... Uh, all of us need it. This sin affects all of humanity. There's a poem that talks about the forgotten life or the shortness, the brevity of life. The man's speaking here. He says, I've wandered to the village, Tom. I've sat beneath the tree upon the schoolhouse playground which sheltered you and me. But none were there to greet me, Tom, and few were left to know that played with us upon the grass some 60 years ago. Nearby the spring upon an elm, I know you cut your name, your sweetheart's name beneath it, Tom, and I did mine the same. Some heartless wretch had peeled the bark, t'was dying, sure but slow, just as the name was cut, died 60 years ago. My lids have long been dry, Tom, but tears came in my eyes. I thought of her I loved so well, those early broken ties. I visited the churchyard and took some flowers to strew upon the graves of those we loved some 60 years ago. Some are in the churchyard laid, some sleep beneath the sea, but few are left of our old class excepting you and me. And when our time has come, Tom, and we are called to go, I hope they'll lay us where we played some 60 years ago. Such is the depressing reality of, of sin's curse. We live, we die, we live, we die, we live, we die, we live, we die, over and over and over again. The second truth, though, the second truth to consider about the genealogy, the genealogy also teaches us that Christ's death was the culmination of God's promise to the Jews for a Messiah. Notice Jesus' line here. It goes through these people, and again, we don't know who these people are, many of them. We know Zerubbabel, we know Shealtel, we know that those were involved in rebuilding the temple. 
But we don't know many of the other names until we come down here to David. We know his son, Nathan, and he's the son of David. Jesus reigns here as the Davidic king. He is legally tied to the King David. Then he goes on and he lists other names, and we get down to Abraham. Jesus is a fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham, and Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promise to David. This genealogy teaches us that Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promise to the Jewish people, to be a blessing through them to all the nations. We've talked about that in weeks past. I'm not going to continue much more on that. Uh, Look at the third truth that it teaches us, though, and this is what I want to spend the rest of our time on. The genealogy here teaches us, the genealogy teaches us that Christ's righteousness is for all of humanity. It's interesting, Matthew's genealogy only goes up to the time of Abraham and it stops. Luke is writing to all the nations and what does Luke's genealogy do? It goes to Abraham and then it goes beyond. Verse 34, he talks about Abraham, then he talks about Terah, Nahor, Surug, Ru, Peleg, Eber, Shelah, Canaan, Ephaxid, Shem, Noah, Lamech, Methuselah, Enoch, Jared, Mahalel, Canaan, Enos, Seth, Adam, God. Go back to Romans chapter 5 with me, if you will. Romans chapter 5 has talked about the curse that all experience through Adam. There's good news here as well. It says in verse 15, but the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through that one man, Jesus Christ. You say, through the fact we have this imputed nature, all of us are sinners in Adam, but here's the good news. Because we have imputed natures, we can receive righteousness from Jesus Christ. Verses 21 and 22 of Luke chapter 3 teach us that Jesus, as the divine Son of God, has the righteousness we need. Now here's the question. How do we get that righteousness? How do we gain access to it? We need it. We're desperate for us. The answer is that God, who has the righteousness, all these resources, becomes a man. And just as all the people on that genealogy live under sin's curse, now Jesus, son of, son of, son of, son of Adam, son of God, as the human son of God, has the ability as our new representative to give us the righteousness that we all so desperately need. Imagine that I wanted to become an Olympic skater, not a figure skater, a speed skater. Let's get that clear. I think those guys are cool, right? Those guys, they're, they're a little nutty. And I want to be an Olympic speed skater. Short track. What's it going to take? I the tiger, I got it. Discipline, yeah. You say, Daniel, I got some bad news for you, buddy. You don't got it. It's not a matter of wanting it real badly, practicing real hard. There's some genetic issues with you. You're never going to be an Olympic speed skater. And you're getting a little older. What would need to happen for me to become an Olympic speed skater? I would need a a radical body transplant. I don't have it within me. There are two thoughts about how we obtain righteousness. Again, I'm using some big theological words here. Hopefully you understand the significance behind these phrases. One one theory says that Christ's righteousness is what's called infused to us. So 
this, this Roman Catholic theology teaches this. So a person needs righteousness, and, and we get a little bit of the righteousness of Christ, and we respond to it, we get a little more. It's just kind of infused in us. That's not what we need, though. And what I believe Scripture teaches us here in Luke chapter 3 and Romans chapter 5 is that we, right, Christ's righteousness is charged to us. It's imputed to us. God looks at us and views us as righteous, not on the basis of our righteousness, but on the basis of Christ's righteousness. Just as Adam's sin was charged to us and we were held culpable because of Adam's sin and its corrupting influences were felt in our life, now... God can look at our new representative, at Jesus Christ, and he can take Jesus Christ's righteousness as a human being, and as he sees us, see not our righteousness, but Christ's righteousness. That is a crucial truth. You and I have a desperate, desperate, desperate need for righteousness. We cannot obtain this righteousness on our own. We need it from someone. Luke is going to begin telling us about Jesus' ministry beginning in chapter 4. Here in chapter 3, there's a little proof given. Who is this guy, Jesus? He's the Son of God. He's the divine Son of God, which means he has access to all the resources of God. And he's the human son of God, which means he has the ability to serve as an example for us and to allow his righteousness to be viewed as our righteousness. Both those truths are crucial for us to understand as we move forward in looking at Jesus' life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus. We thank you that he is the son of God, that he is fully God. That he has the righteousness that, you and I, that, that we could not obtain on our own. We thank you that as son of God in human form, we can share in that righteousness. Give us the grace to be obedient. Give us the grace to have that righteousness infused into our lives and uh, imputed into our lives as we, as we place our faith in, in your son Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen.